0: On this Survivor Stories series episode, our guest is Carol, a protective mom of two young boys. Carol shares with us her struggles as a parent during a pandemic and how her efforts to keep her children safe are compromised by her ex-husband. During our conversation, Carol shares with us examples of abuser tactics used by her ex-husband that inhibit her ability to make safe choices for her children and for herself, and some upstander tips on how we as a society can use this awareness to do better. Good morning. Welcome, Carol. Hi. So this episode is part of a series that we're doing on the gendered impact of COVID or the coronavirus. And we've seen all across the world uptick in domestic violence. And even though, Carol, you and your ex-husband have been separated and divorced for some time now, um, I really want to shed some light through our conversation on how domestic abuse doesn't end when you leave your abuser and that it can take form in different ways. What was your custody and/ or visitation schedule and arrangement prior to the onset of COVID-19?
1: Well, so we had gone through a pretty contentious divorce process you know like so many protective moms have experienced and like so many other protective moms did not come out for the best outcomes but so our custody, well, custody slash placement is that I see, I have the kids every other weekend and then the Thursday before his weekend, I get them overnight. And then the Monday after his weekend, I see them for a few hours in the evening. So after school until about seven o'clock and that uh, the, the, our, the language in our agreement was specifically around the school schedule and when school started and let out. So that's been kind of a problem.
0: When it was your time to spend with your children, would you pick them up at school? Is that how it worked? Yep. And then after at seven o'clock, when your t- parenting time was over, where would you re- bring the children back to their father? We would do our person in-person exchanges at the police station. And this was in the custody order.
1: It was in the custody order, so we tried to avoid as many in-person exchanges as we could because it was well, one, it was risky. two, it was a it was really stressful on the kids to have to be in the presence of both of us because, well, I mean, they remember a lot of what happened, so. Um it caused them a lot of stress to be around both of us at the same time. So we try to avoid that. And so that's why most of our, our exchanges happened either at school or at daycare. You have two boys, Carol? How old are they? Yep, two boys. They are four and six.
0: What about is the four year old in pre K, I guess? Is that the right age? Yep,
1: he is in pre-K and then his, um, well, three-year-old kindergarten specifically. And then um, my six-year-old is in kindergarten.
0: Okay, so what what does the order say with regard to summer visitation? Because that's coming up soon as well. I mean, it, it probably has some notation because there won't be any possibility to do exchanges at the school.
1: The exchanges for the summer were supposed to be primarily at the daycare. So he could drop off and I would pick up. Um, and we would still have, um, the other thing is too, is that, um, for our summer schedule, my Monday visits turn into Monday overnights. So then we don't have any in-person exchanges during the summer, with the exception of a few holidays, but that, you know, that's a little different. So. I see. Do you live in
0: a state where, there, where there's a currently a lockdown?
1: It's a, it's a safe at home order is what we're under, and so it's not as strict as some of the other states with their lockdowns, but schools are closed. Almost all of the daycares are closed. There was a select few that were allowed to stay open. Um, the first round, they had to stay have less than 50 children, and then they reduced it down to 30 children. And uh, I'm trying to think what other... There's other things like, um, you know, the store, a lot of the stores are closed. The only retail that's allowed to be open is for necessities like,
0: um, you know, hardware and food. Um, The malls are closed. So the difference between that and a shelter in place is that you do have daycare available. And so both your children are able to go and therefore be exposed to other kids. Correct.
1: So they, um, some daycares are open. Um, they they greatly limited how many daycares were open and how many children could be there, um, and they put in recommendations that um, it was they were only supposed to be used for essential employees. So people that you know work in the medical field, um, police officers, you know people like people like that. So they they did prioritize who got those spots and. So, because my abuser works in the medical field, they were able to maintain their spot there. However, because m- I am not working during this lockdown or this um, this time, because my my employer was um, ordered to shut down, they um you know, they could be with me. I, I am capable of taking care of them. I I can take care of them. I'm capable of doing all their school work because I but they are being put in daycare instead. So they are increasing um, the risk of not only not only the other children and the other children's families, but um, increasing the risk to myself and increasing the risk unnecessarily to other community members. And it's really unfortunate.
0: So I understand that you are immunocompromised.
1: Yes, yeah, I um, would fall to the high risk category, similar to say other people who are on chemotherapy or, you know, that kind of that level of
0: immunocompromised. Before states started taking action around COVID 19, uh, and actually I was going to say before we haven't had a national strategy, but we currently don't really have one. Right. And you became aware of this problem in the news. Did you have any inkling? That this was going to impact your time with your children and your relationship with your children.
1: I was. I didn't think that it was going. Earlier this. Earlier in this, I did not think that it was going to get as extreme as it did. But as soon as they started talking about closing the schools, that's when I started to become a bit more worried as far as actually being able to see my children, because I knew. I I knew that my uh, my abuser would would weaponize pretty much anything that he could to. to continue his campaign. So that when they started closing the schools, that's when I really started to get a little nervous.
0: Your ex-husband is someone you mentioned who works in the medical field. Can you talk about what level of daily exposure his job uh, puts him at risk of?
1: He um, works in, so he works in the medical field. Um, Last I knew, he worked in about five different hospitals and two different clinics. And I know that his um, his workload is probably decreased because they're only doing emergency work, but they're still doing emergency emergency work. And that does take him in and out of the ICU and in and out of the emergency room. So his exposure risk of exposure is higher than, you know, say a medical a healthcare worker who is not in and out of the ICU or, or the ER. So he is at higher risk of exposure. Um, and which means that he could pass it on to my children and pass it on to me through them. And he has said, um, in previous messages that he, when we were trying to discuss, um, I tried, tried to discuss, you know, changing our placement schedule temporarily to, you know, minimize the risk for everybody. And his response was that he wasn't going to be taking any extra precautions because, in his eyes he we were all going to get it anyway and that i was the only one at risk so he didn't
0: really care do, do you know in his communication with you if he is actually practicing proper social distancing and taking the necessary precautions as a medical professional let alone as a parent
1: i i don't know for sure um i know that the social distancing piece He is not because, you know, he still has the kids in daycare. He is still using multiple sitters. Um, He has his elderly parents babysit the children when he's working. Um, He hasn't, I know he hasn't changed that. And I know from previous experience with him that he is not necessarily um, conscious or intentional about some of the things that he does personally either. He has come to a few of the exchanges with the kids, he's come in scrubs. So, um, this was at the police station or the police station. Yes. He's come to the police station wearing scrubs,
0: but did he
1: have a mask on? Nope. No other protective gear, no mask, no gloves, just scrubs and, um, a, a fleece with his, uh, his business name on it or his employer's name on it. And I also know that even even when we were together, you know, I would ask him to, you know, wash his hands, do do reasonable things like, you know, wash your hands when you get home, please come home and clean scrubs, um, you know, please keep your work shoes outside and change into house shoes when you come home. You know, things that, you know, to help minimize um the risk that he could be bringing in even even for seasonal flu or, you know, the other things that he would be exposed to. And he would he would refuse. So, I I hope that he has he's not doing that anymore simply because that, you know, that was just a way for him to kind of I don't want to say taunt me, but that would have been a, a, a subtle fear tactic that he used in the past. So I hope maybe that has gone away since the target myself isn't in the building or in the home. So. But I don't know. That's that's me being wishful. <laughs> and but other than that, I know that he's not he is still taking um, one of our children to to sp- certain appointments that they wouldn't otherwise really need to go to. I know that he's not so he's not practicing social distancing that way. He's not practicing. I, I've never seen him wear a mask at any of the exchanges and coming in his work clothes to pick up the children or drop them off. So, so when he
0: comes with scrubs to the exchanges at the police station, how did the police react? Do they have any recommendations for you or advice? Or do they have any guidance for him about how he should behave?
1: They have not. Um, they well, the police. So for our exchanges. Um, so we've had to use the police station for over a year now. And, you know, at first it was hopeful that it would be a temporary situation to use the police station. However, He has, even in that environment, used child exchanges to um, harass me, intimidate me, yell at me. And I've had, uh, I usually try to have third parties um, with us so that one, I have a witness and two, there is somebody that can walk the children between us so that he and I don't have to have contact. So with the social distancing, now that that I don't feel safe. I don't want to ask any of my friends to do that anymore while the social distancing is going on. And his I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, the stress and trauma. <laughs> they're kind of working to, working it's uh, working their magic, I guess. They have at, usually we um, after a few different incidences we've had, um, we do the exchanges, typically do the exchanges inside the police station so that there is better security footage and that there's also more witnesses that can hear him if he starts yelling again or he starts yelling at somebody as he has in the past. so. But because of him coming in scrubs and because the police know what he do- does for work, they have asked us to do our exchanges outside. And so how they've handled it now is that they have an officer sit in their car and watch the exchange and the kids then walk between um, our cars so that we don't have to
0: um, so that our contact is minimized. Um, That seems like something that the police station needs to coordinate in advance and seems precarious in terms of its reliability. I mean, is there always someone who, based on your exchange schedule, is in the car observing?
1: Um, So far, there has been. Um, I think, you know, early on when we had to start using the police station, they were not as helpful. But after a few incidences of him getting aggressive with even the third parties and even in front of the third party children, they started to kind of figure out that this isn't a typical custody situation. And so they've been a lot more accommodating and a lot more helpful and in that aspect. And so they have, they have always so far had somebody available and they have said too, that if for some reason they don't have someone available, then we could do it in the lobby. It's just that every, I mean, for, for, Completely reasonable reasons um, would they prefer us to keep stay outside for now, so that you know they're not exposed. And and I and I understand and respect that, but it's definitely caused it. It has decreased my safety in the exchanges.
0: Well, I'm in New York, and we're sheltering in place. Uh, we've been doing so since mid March, and I mm-hmm. haven't had an opportunity to go to a police station since then. I'm wondering, given the high rates of infection amongst. Law enforcement are police officers wearing masks when you go to the police station? Are they covered
1: up? Not yet. No. No, not yet. Not by us. They and I yeah, and it's I can say that the the area that, that I am in, I've been a little concerned about the lack of people are just generally not taking it as seriously as they could or should. And there is a very strong feeling amongst a lot of people that you can't tell me, you know, you can't tell me what to do. You know, this is America. I have freedom. I can do what I want. And I, I I understand that response. I just, it's just not a great
0: time for it. (laughs) And uh, I understand it too, but it's, you know, you can't be free if you're dead. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it seems like the best way to protect your freedom is to protect your health. Right. I agree.
1: And, and your ability
0: to exercise your freedom.
1: Um, right. And it's a short sacrifice. A, a few weeks, a few months of, you know, changing your habits is not necessarily, just, I just, I have a hard time with people who have that priority mindset as well. So I just think that it's better. Like, you know, we're as a community, we need to help each other. And this is a time to come together and make shared sacrifice. And, you know, things will get back to normal later. But you know, for now, this is what we need to do. And it's for the good of everybody. So
0: it's so I understand that you've read, there was an article recently in the New York Times that I shared with you prior to this conversation. Yes, around the ways in which COVID-19 is affecting custody. And our conversation is part of a series on the gendered impact of COVID and the Coronavirus. So I had shared also a tweet or set of tweets that I wrote in response to the author of that article, Megan Toohey, who's actually one of the co-authors of the She Said book, which I loved. I don't know if you've read that book, which chronicles the downfall of Harvey Weinstein and the, um, the Me Too movement. And I, I don't want to say rise because I don't know how, how much we're actually getting done, <laughs> how much right. has actually changed out of Me Too. Um, but. But you know, I really respected her as a journalist, um, and especially for producing that book and her research on that book. And I was really disappointed in Megan's reporting with regard to custody because she made it seem gender neutral, and there was no real deep dive into the relationship dynamics of each of these couples, parents, and whether or not there was a power and control issue prior. Because someone who's, let's say, you as a protective parent who's concerned, and if you were the primary custodial parent and your ex, you know, was engaging in this behavior, I think you would have rightful reason to say, no, I don't want to have, you know, the children go to daycare on your time, Um, you know, I can, I can, you know, offer, um, you know, myself um, first, or it's called right of first refusal, right? You can, you can offer that. And um, it, would, it would be cast as the same way as you being, quote unquote, obstructionist, even though right now in your situation where you're the non-custodial parent, your abuser has shared, um, and you've shared with me the, the you know, quotes and, and th- statements he's made to you where he is deliberately not social distancing, not adhering to those practices as a way to, number one, you said help the children get infected so they could have herd immunity, and and since he doesn't care about your health, you're the only one that's quote-unquote immunocompromised, it doesn't matter, right? There's no consequence. So I feel like that distinction wasn't made clear in the examples that were in that New York Times article, and I'm wondering what you thought when you first read that article and what you thought about my response to it.
1: I thought your response to it was absolutely spot on. I I found that article to be, I, I mean, just completely misrepresenting what so many of us go through. And I, I think one one thing that people, journalists particularly, miss when it comes to these cust- these quote unquote custody battles is that, you know, non-abusive parents generally don't act like this. Like they. I've seen. I have other friends that are, you know, that aren't with their their um, former partner, their the parent of the other of their children anymore. And you know, they work together. They have conversations. They say they analyze their risk. That you know, they can work it out. And in our situation, it's it's. I I just (laughs) she just missed the mark on so many ways and just went down the road that so many. People do with the myths of what custody battles are and completely ignoring the history of power and control, coercive control, um, the, the abuse dynamics. And I think that if two people could look at their risk without the hatred that comes with the abuse or the control needs that come with the abuse, that they would be able to say, OK, my ex has, you know, she's not working. I'm in a high risk situation. It's, it's not good for, I mean, it's not good for her to get sick. It's not good for our kids to get sick. It's not good for us to pass this virus on through the childcare options. Like the, I think sane people would come to the conclusion that yes, the person, the parent who is at least risk should have the kids temporarily. I mean, it's not a permanent situation. And that I think is how normal people would handle it. However, when it comes to these divorce cases, I mean, abuse is extremely common in divorce and custody. And when two parents cannot come to an agreement, I think that really needs to be considered as to why. I mean, and especially, I, I mean, I think my situation is a lot more obvious simply because of of our situation. I think anybody could look at my situation and be like, yeah, so mom's available. Kids don't need to be in daycare, but Dad is still doing that, um, doing all these different things just to keep the kids away. Like, this isn't rational. And I, I have not been able to find anybody who says, yeah, this is a little, this is okay.
0: Previously, you had used the word, you were hesitant, actually reluct, reluctant to use the word taunt. And I feel like that is appropriate to describe the ways in which your ex has used his exposure, his increased risk of exposure to infection um, through his work and refusal to take necessary precautions that other medical professionals do, and, and that that would be something that is can be considered taunting. And so if one were to understand abuse dynamics and coercive control dynamics and recognize that, then I think they would be able to differentiate from the examples they gave in the article where the just a regular divorced couple, the mother in this case, a custodial parent, was concerned mm-hmm. and wanted to keep the kids because the father the other parent was a healthcare worker and so if you had if you had to help guide someone who's trying to identify which of these dynamics are problematic which should the courts prioritize how would you help them identify that case the one where the mother is a custodial parent there is no abuse or course of control on either side she wants to, quote unquote, withhold parenting time from the other parent who's a healthcare worker out of safety and precaution for the kids. How would you differentiate that from what you're experiencing now?
1: You know, I think you really have to look at the history. And so, you know, in previous times, you know, in the other cases, did the parents offer, you know, when the kids were sick, did they offer makeup time to the other parent? Have they co-parented well previously? And if that's not the case, then that in and of itself is a red flag. Because if you can't even handle the smaller, the smaller, more regular, regular item, like regular things that we run into, how can you possibly navigate the big stuff? And I, I, I would look at that history first. Um, also look at the history as far as like who, like the power and control dynamics. How you know how did the divorce go? You know, was there a lot of power plays? Were there a lot of you know, underhanded tactics or was it actually focused on the kids? Is what is best focused on, you know, are their intentions actually focused on what's best for the children? I mean, in my situation, you can see, like, he is not even in the slightest bit concerned about my, me making it through this alive, first of all. And that is an extreme thing to look at, to consider. It's just like, even even if, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. Like it's just so ridiculous, but like normally like people can separate their disdain for the other parent from what is good for the kids. Like even if they don't like the other person, they can say they still need this person in their lives. Like they still have positive things to offer. And in my situation, it's pretty obvious that that is not what's happening. And I think that's something um, that people should look for as well. Coercive control and abuse is just so incredibly common. It's extremely damaging to the lives of women and children in particular. And we really need to address it. I think I know I can speak for our state and we had, um, a, we have a bill in its early stages where they are trying to address the issue of, um, victims not backing out at the last minute for, to being witnesses to the, the criminal charges of their abuser. And I, I forget exactly how they wanted to do it, but they wanted to impose sanctions on the witnesses that backed out. And while I think that I do believe that, you know, it's hard for prosecutors to prosecute domestic violence, partially because uh, and abuse, because victims back out. But the reason they back out is because of the coercive control that they are experiencing from both <laughs> in, in, from both their abuser right? Like they have to worry about the consequences from their abuser, but also, you know, the I mean, the prosecutors are coercing them too. And they need to understand those dynamics of how to actually get the, the victims to have a safe place so they can properly be witnesses. And I, how we go
0: about it is really important. I, I just... So what comes to mind when you, were, when you were talking earlier just now is there's a case in in New York City, I think it was a queen's mom. I don't remember if she was a nurse or a doctor. And when she had to gear up, not, not necessarily literally, but emotionally for being invested emotionally and, and physically and um, time-wise invested in being on the front lines. There was an article about her and a picture that I think may have, you know, gone, um, may have been distributed across the country. Where she packed up her daughter in the car in the back seat of her car, and she said goodbye. you know, i I don't remember like if her daughter went with went to her mom's um and she, or her kids went to her you know the grandparents or if her husband you know brought the kids to the grandparents and they all were away. so she's physically either alone in the in the or in her home or with her husband, but she deliberately removed the kids from her home so that she wouldn't have to worry about exposing them every day that she came home from work and that was a parent who's in what appeared to be a you know a happy relationship um, and she chose to do that on her own which is very different from this power struggle that you know you've described right. with regard to divorced parents
1: well and I know I have other friends that are in um I have a friend who is an ICU nurse and she has children in the 10 to 15 year old range and they she is voluntarily staying in they have a mother-in-law suite in their house and that is where she is staying and she is self-isolating at home from her family um and then you read the articles too about other medical workers that are you know staying sleeping in their car and staying in their car so that they don't go home and it's like that very different dynamic is like this is how some people taking this very seriously versus other people who are not and how they navigate it is really, it's really telling. So and I know, you know, even so another thing is, too, is when even when I was with my abuser, um, you know, we had talked about what would happen if, you know, he got exposed to something, if there was a, a, a outbreak of something, and it's just of something major. And, you know, the, you know, the, he, we decided and like that either he would go to a hotel or someplace, he would separate himself from the kids and I to protect us. And then, you know, the divorce happens. And now, this is how he's handling it. So, I mean, granted, he might not have been telling the truth back when he said that he would self, he would, you know, he would separate himself from us just to protect us. But um, in any case, it's, it's just interesting how the dynamics of it it just, to me, it seems so obvious. Um, But for the journalist to miss, miss the abuse dynamics in these cases is pretty, I thought was pretty, pretty awful. Your abuser doesn't even have to be with you in order to still maintain control of your actions, and I, you know, another think, another thing that we could do in the domestic violence community and the survivor community is we really need to change some of the words that we use because I don't think... I, I agree with Rachel Louise Snyder and it's like the, the term domestic violence does not cover it. It does not describe the terror, the fear, the the danger. And it really is terrorism because it is meant to control. It is meant for a political purpose and it, that purpose is, you know, male supremacy. And it, it's, it's a predator-prey dynamic, right? Like it's a lion going after... A, a zebra or a gazelle it's and it's the cat and the mouse like the the cat playing with the mouse for fun before they eat it like that's it's it, that's more of the dynamic and i think that if we talk about abusers more as predators and calling out their predatorial behavior and then considering like talking about victims more as the target or the vic or the target or the the prey i think that might help people understand the concept a
0: little bit better you know, we've also seen, I'm sure you've also seen articles over the past several weeks of couples where the healthcare, you know, workers coming home and they're outside the home, whether it's the house or the apartment, and they pretty much almost strip down, you know, everything that they have. Right. And the other partner is like, you know, putting their clothes in a bag so it could be washed immediately. And then that healthcare worker goes to immediately take a shower right before they step into the home. So it's a very coordinated Set of risk mitigation right. tactics um, that you did definitely did not describe when it comes when it came to your ex-husband when you were living together and and so I I can see that as also a, a sign for how to differentiate. I agree. I agree. Since the safe at home order has been put into effect for you, how has the quality or the quantity of your time changed?
1: Yeah, it's um, the, the, well, the quality of the time has been, um, has actually been pretty good because they, my kids, it, when they come home to me, like my place, their safe place. And so they adapt, they, you know, they come home and they're pretty happy. I, I think because of their age and also because of their, their disabilities, they have less of an idea of what's happening. So that's protective, I think, for them. But yeah, so he is, since our exchange times were based off of the school schedule, where I would normally get one child, say, you know, just before lunch, because he's in half day, and I would get the other one just after three, because he's in full day. um, He's now saying that because there's no school, I don't get them until four o'clock. And he just kind of made that up. And... Because my, our order sp- says that if there's no school, then I get them at 9 a.m. But he's decided that no, it's 4 p.m.
0: instead, and so he's cut into my time significantly that way. So, so basically, he's not adhering to the order. He's violating the terms of the order.
1: Correct. Be- so, because there wasn't, um, there it wasn't, it wasn't clear cut of what happened in this in this exact situation. He is using that to his advantage to further chip away at my very
0: limited time already. And what are your options? Is Do you have an attorney? Is that something you would you think is, is um, something you can pursue to get enforcement of? Do you think it's worth it at this time to make that, you know, kind of action, take that action?
1: Um, you know, whether so, well, one, we've been keeping track, we've been documenting. Um, and I do have an attorney and she is trying to work with him through his attorney to you know, get a plan together as far as when exchanges will happen and so on and so forth. And um, we could file in family court. They are hearing things telephonically with the commissioner, family court commissioners. So far from the people that I know that have gone through it it has not been helpful. They've been pretty much just coming down with follow the order as written as if school is in session. Um, And. I. It's hard to say whether or not like family court has never been a place where I could find any reasonable, reasonable relief for anything. And I don't know that um, particularly with the time frame that they uh, have been projecting for our state, you know, I don't know necessarily if it's worth going back and filing contempt claims or if it's just worth documenting it so that when we do have to go back for something else for contempt, you know, I have this history.
0: I, I'm on the fence about it. I, I really am. For, for many of the court statements that I've read, they are only giving time now to emergency protective orders. Uh, and, you know, in extreme cases, if a child has been quote-unquote kidnapped, so enforcement of orders... D- will definitely not be a priority, right. And And I can see how that confusion, some of which may be deliberately created by the abuser, is something that will that many survivors and protective moms such as yourself will just have to live with until there's a better time for, for us to be able to get accountability. But I think having these conversations and helping the public, to better understand these dynamics is is one way because you know it's it's such a I didn't re- I realize I didn't share or ask you this earlier about your abuser having primary custody you're a listener to the podcast and I'm sure you're aware that there's a lot of episodes that we've had that's dealt with the divorce and custody issues and protective parents and and the dynamics and the statistics around how abusers Uh, win in court when there is abuse because systemically the court system believes men and they don't believe the victims and they penalize them. Usually the victim is the mom for speaking out. Um, And so that is what led to your own situation as many, many, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of other survivors who are protective moms out there have experienced as well. Um, Do you want to say anything about that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, and that that comes back to exactly why I'm hesitant to file anything in family court, um, even to get a hearing in the future to be like, hey, this is how, you know, to get it it on the record that this is how he handled the situation. Because in my experience, anytime I've tried to... um, tried to do that, I end up in a worse situation. So it's almost like they're punishing me for even trying to be a part of my kids' lives, or for punishing me for trying to um, protect them. And it it causes me a lot of anxiety to think about. Like, so I have to decide. I'm like, is the court going to make things even worse? Or are they going to? That that is always my concern, and that's the first thing I think about when I think I need to go back and file a motion. And I'm just. I have to decide if it's worth it or not or what the probability is because, I mean, in my situation, not only did they give him more credibility because of his gender, but also because of his position in the community and his income and his job. So, I mean, it was pretty incredible the evidence that they ignored and minimized because of that. So I, you know, it's it feels like a very David and Goliath situation. <laughs> And it doesn't feel that there is um,
0: much help where there should be help. so before we close, I also want to just touch upon the fact that you live in a state that recently um, required the citizens to participate in person uh, to cast their ballot for the dem- for the primary right. and and that was something that was overturned by the Supreme Court. They overruled. Is is that right, by the way, what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, so that was something that the the Supreme Court overruled, which is the governor actually postponed your primary to, I don't remember if it was June or a later date, and then the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to have it in person. And actually, it also discounted many of the mail-in ballots. So what was that experience like? Did you go out and vote? And how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, so I'll just, I'll go ahead and say it. I'm in Wisconsin. (laughs) And yeah, they did. They pushed it. The, the original plan was to push it to um, early June. And so my understanding of what happened is the legislature did not want to push it off. And then the governor used essentially an executive order to push it off. And then the Supreme Court overruled the governor. And it was also interesting because when the Supreme Court um, discussed it, they um, <laughs> discussed overruling the governor, they did it they did it (laughs) but they didn't do it in person because of COVID-19. And so then they made that decision to expose, you know, anybody who wanted to vote. And I, I I saw one of my coping mechanisms has been, I try to go on a drive every day um, because generally speaking state, you know, the being in your car can, you know, isolate you from the, um, you know, people, other people walking or running. It's, it gets me out of the house and it's helpful. So I did see the lines. For voting, And people were practicing... In, in a lot of places, people were practicing social distancing in the lines. But that also meant that there were elderly and disabled people who had to find a way to stand for literally hours um, and maneuver that. And I can only imagine how hard that was. I requested an absentee ballot. Um, my absentee ballot did not arrive. And I, so I chose... Um, not to vote because I have to think that, you know, being exposed to this virus that had a, that would have a very high likelihood of killing me. You know, I I was put in the position of, you know, do I risk can, you know, contracting this illness and voting or do I, do I risk basically do I risk dying to vote for the, this? And I just had to come to the conclusion that for me, it's not, it's not worth it. And Especially, and I have to say, like my experience with family court and how often my rights were violated in family court without any, without, you know, any accountability or any way to fight it. I mean, that played a big role in my decision, too, because I'm just like, I don't feel that we have the rights anyway. So what are what kind of governments am I voting for? And is my vote going to make much of a difference? And I didn't feel that it was worth risking my life for.
0: If you had requested an absentee ballot I don't think you would have been eligible to go in person anyway
1: Um they I can't remember they said there were other people that did they did allow it
0: because they knew the ballots got lost I see So yeah um but, but I I, just- I, mean, I I totally sympathize with you and I you know and I feel like this is obviously the the efforts in voter suppression across the country has been going on for decades Right and especially in urban areas, in areas where there's high minority populations, in areas where there are potentially more democratic uh, voters who support policies that enable collective well-being rather than individual well-being, and you know, such as Medicare for all and right. our social safety net, and you know, all of those things that um, you would think at this time of crisis that people would start to shift around, you know, the fact that so many people, millions of people, over 12 million people, I think, have now 10% of the population, the working population is now unemployed as of today, you would think that, Uh you know, they would support healthcare for all as a right, because now if their health insurance was tied to their job, they're all going to be without health insurance, they'll be uncovered, right? And, and yet, um, I don't see that these mindsets are shifting. And so to the extent that you know your um, ability to exercise your right to vote and to make decisions that contribute to changes in your community was um, suppressed or discouraged, that's something that certainly was intentional and unfortunate. And I hope that as we navigate the impact of this crisis, you know, on different areas of our population and different sectors, that that's something that we can come together on and really, you know, focus on preserving the infrastructure for our democracy, because, you know, that's really what's at risk. Um, if we don't have the ability to make choices and decisions to influence how policy and what policy is implemented and, and you know, comes to be, then we don't have <laughs> any freedoms at all. Right.
1: I I just... It, it really struck me just how they, how they did it. I mean, they just put the entire community at, into, in the position where they had to choose whether or not to get exposed to the virus or practice their civil um, or practice their, their right to vote. And I just couldn't help but to, it, it was just really telling to me because we had a, a seat for the Supreme Court up for election and just how my experience in court, the the coercion that comes from their tactics within court with the with the family court litigants. And it was just it was just so it, it just reminded me so much of the coercion co- coercive control tactics that abusers use that, you know, well, you can do this if you want, but there's gonna be consequences. Is basically what they said. Like you can still vote. It's your choice to vote, but you know the choice is, you know, um, definitely not a good. The consequences for choosing are were severe, and it's you know those constant lose lose situations and the constant double binds that abusers put you in, and that family court puts you in as well. That you can't do anything. You know, that the, it's it was just anyway, just very telling. And then just to, to think that the Supreme Court would even do that with the entire population. It's just like, I hope people pay attention to that aspect of it, how the court themselves put the entire community in the position where they had to choose to risk their life and their safety in order to practice their right to vote. I
0: Well, thank you so much, Carol, for your time today. I hope that your story can shed some light on these very challenging times, and especially as children are at play and they're caught between these um, very negative dynamics. So I appreciate you setting aside time to, you know, make yourself vulnerable. And I wish you and your children safety and connection. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time as well and for the work that you do on these
1: topics. They definitely need to be discussed more.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoit Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community and learning. You can join CanDoit Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.